See, the study of human nature is the business of marketers. Our job, our skill, is to understand the concept of desire. Now, I am an ad man. My job is to get my clients' products in the path of that desire. Now, the ultimate goal, the holy grail, the pot of gold in my business, is to create the easiest, smoothest, most velvety, most speed bump free path to that sale. Have you ever heard of the expression, what goes around comes around? It certainly has with me. I'm hosting a radio show and my first job was selling radio advertising. AM 1470, a little AM station on the West Island of Montreal, had a Samsonite briefcase of it. My own initials and a combination lock, and it was just packed with everything and anything I figured I need to close that sale. One morning, I'm driving up St. Charles Boulevard. Corner of my eye, I catch an A-frame sign, opening soon. Rib Tickles Restaurant. Wow, cold call opportunity. I walk in, I track down the owner, it's a couple. I put my Samsonite briefcase on the, on the table, just about to get into the pitch, and they say, Hey, kid, if you're here to sell us advertising, the answer is no. It's not that we don't need it or want it. We're just all in. Every penny we have is into this restaurant. Pick up that briefcase. It feels twice as heavy on the way out. Just about to open the door and I hear, hey kid, turn around. Are you hungry? I said, yeah, I'm hungry. We're just, well, we're just about to bring out a test plate of ribs. You want to try them? At that point, Barbie Barn was the finest ribs in Montreal, but they just smoked them. And I loved them and I was walking out and they said, hey, if you're around this time next day, it's our biscuits and gravy and chicken we're trying. So day two, I showed up and by day three, whether they found some money or just felt sorry for me, they put $300 into an advertising campaign. And I was all in because I liked these people. I made sure we had the best producers, got the best airtime that $300 could buy, and I show up opening night. So excited, and I walk in. It's not a soul in the restaurant. All I could see is the fear in the couple's eyes and a couple of friends sort of smiling awkwardly. And I walk over to assure them. As I'm walking over, I hear the door open behind me. Within a half hour, the place is jammed, it's packed. I do everything and anything I can to make the chaos of opening night work, busking tables, taking orders. More than once, I asked people, how did they hear about the restaurant? I said, well, I heard about it on the radio. And I found my purpose that night. I realized that my quest in life would be finding ways to bring buyers and sellers together through the magic of advertising and creativity. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And today my guest is someone that also started in radio and continues today by having one of the most successful radio shows in Canadian history. He's kind of the Joe Rogan of Canada. I've been following this guy for years, and he's at the top of the top of the list of people that I admire in terms of creativity, strategy, insights, humor, wit, all the things that come together when you find a great ad guy. His name is Terry O'Reilly. And what you're about to hear is a story of someone that I almost call nomadic. Every time he's at the top of his game, he decides that's not enough and he reinvents himself. Terry O'Reilly, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Well, thank you, Tony. That was uh, quite an amazing introduction. I'm not sure I can live up to that. Well, you truly are. For people that were uh, fans of the show Mad Men and that era... You were a little bit after that, uh, as I was, but at the same time, it was really was those days when money flowed and people just valued creativity. 
And tell us a little bit about how you got into it. Because when you graduated from Ryerson, that was your dream, but it took a long time for you actually to find that first rung on the ladder. First of all, I didn't graduate from Ryerson. I left one credit short of my degree. And I, I couldn't wait to get into my occupation. Like I couldn't wait to jump into the job world. So I blew one full credit with that mindset. But anyway, when I got out of Ryerson, it was a, a recession, 1981. So it was very hard for anybody to find a job. And I sent out resumes to 60 different advertising agencies. I knew I wanted to be a, a copywriter. And I got back, and this is a true story, 61 rejection letters. One of them rejected me twice. That's, that's how little they wanted me. <laughs> and so the only thing I could think of was putting my resume into a, into a radio station. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in all mediums. I didn't want to be just radio, but I decided to give it a shot. My fiance at the time, and now my wife, lived in Hamilton, so I would get on the go bus every weekend to see her. And I would pass this small radio station on the QEW, Tony, called FM 108 in Burlington. One day I got off before my stop, ran across the highway, dropped off my resume, and they hired me. So that was how I got my first job in advertising. It wasn't where I wanted to be. It was the only place that would take me. And of course, don't I fall in love with radio. You talk about in one of your interviews that, I mean, there's a 100 plus retail clients and you said that even with meticulous planning and attention to detail, you still found a way to fall flat in your face. So <laughs> tell me how that connects because most people would say meticulous planning, attention to detail, you mitigate risk. Why did you fail sometimes and what did you learn from that? Because there's a million ways something can go sideways. So in small time radio, you have very little resources. So for example, Tony, if I wrote a two-hander script, meaning needing two voices, I would have to do one voice myself and then try and convince one of the disc jockeys coming off his shift to voice the other role, which they never wanted to do because they were all on their way to the golf course. So I was their impediment to the golf course. Or if I wrote a three-hander, Tony, I would I would do one voice, the DJ would do the other voice, and I would do the third voice, but I would slow my voice down by putting my finger on the tape spindle. And so you leave radio, you finally get your shot at advertising. Tell me what that was like in the early days, because the advertising agencies really celebrate their gods, the, the, the men and women that are the top creative directors, and they kind of walk and almost create this massive wake and entourage. What's it like for a young person going in there saying, I have to create ideas and creativity that this person likes if it's ever going to see the market? Terrifying and exciting. My first job in the big leagues, which was a copywriting job at an agency called Campbell Ewald, I got hired by a creative director named Trevor Goodgall, who had created two agencies in South Africa. Then he sold them to Interpublic, and then Interpublic dispatched him from New York to Toronto to set up Campbell Ewald. And he hired me on a two-week trial basis and then ended up keeping me. I was so excited, Tony, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't believe I actually was sitting in a real advertising agency in downtown Toronto with big clients and I was being given a shot. At the same time, so terrified because of the, yeah, I was in the big leagues. So the first assignment Trevor gave me was to come up with a radio campaign for Eastern Airlines business travelers. Radio was my, my safe place. It was my comfort spot because it's all I knew leading up to that. It was the only job I had prior to that. So I was able to come up with a campaign that he loved 
Then he gave me a print campaign to do, and I and I cracked that one. And then he te- he kept me on full time. I knew you more after your advertising career, but when I was researching this show, I had no idea how many awards you won and the clients you work with, like Labatt, Molson, Pepsi USA. I mean, these were big league. How did you move so quickly into that world that you went from being kind of the the kid that got coffee and occasionally got to write a radio ad to contributing to these big campaigns? It's an interesting thing. I remember sitting at a big board meeting at Campbell Ewald. And uh, our biggest client in that agency was Fiberglass Canada. And their biggest product was Fiberglass Pink Home Insulation. That was the flagship account at Campbell Ewald. And every year they would do a big television spot. Like all, that would be the, you know, we do lots of print and radio and billboards, but TV was the one big shot every year for that account. The senior people at the agency, senior creative people had not come up with an idea that Trevor, the creative director, liked. I had an idea, but I was too afraid to put my hand up because I was the greenest person in that room. But Trevor was getting frustrated. The deadline was looming and there was no big idea. So I gathered my courage. I stuck my hand up and said, I I have an idea. So I gave it to him and he said, I love it. And that became the flagship's TV commercial for that brand that year. And in that moment, Tony, I changed in his eyes. In other words, when I finally got the courage to stick my hand up, he then started throwing me bigger and bigger assignments. And then I started to slowly get, you know, the Molson and the Bats and, and the GMs and like the, the typical big brands that juniors never really get a shot at. It all changed that day. And when I look back on that moment, it was the moment that I started to trust my own gut instincts. That was when I was confident enough to stick my hand up. Like that moment changed the trajectory of my copywriting career. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and this is Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. My special guest is Terry O'Reilly. It's one of the most gifted ad guys this country has ever produced. We come back, Terry trades his stellar career in advertising to become a pirate. I want to talk to you about the fact that sometimes people want... Sometimes people need friction in the process before they'll buy a product or an idea. Not the elimination of friction, which advertising and marketing try so hard to achieve. I'm talking about, I'm advocating the implementation of friction in the process. A perfectly counterintuitive concept that can be the magic ingredient in persuasion. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with Terry O'Reilly. You might be one of the million people who listen to his weekly radio show, Under the Influence, or one of the 30 million who downloaded one of his podcast numbers. Those are Joe Rogan types of numbers. Terry, you're winning international awards, you're judging international competitions. You're one of the most sought-after creative minds in the country. But you turn back in your career to forge a new path as an entrepreneur. In 1990, you co-found Pirate Radio as a studio to make great radio and TV ads. And in a fairly short period, your business grossed over 50 people, eight studios in Toronto, New York. What did Pirate Radio do and what made you different from your competition? Pirate was the company I could not find. So as a copywriter, as you know, Tony, when you have a television or radio spot and it's approved by the client, the next step is to find a production company to produce it. And I was having the same experience everywhere I went. I would hire a production company and that means you would hire a director. And I always found myself fighting to save my script from the director. They were always trying to change it, turn it upside down, throw out the cell, concentrate on the humor. 
And it made me crazy no matter where I went, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Minneapolis, Vancouver, it didn't matter. It was always the same scenario, which drove me crazy. And I thought to myself, I'm sure as all entrepreneurs do, there's got to be a better way. So Pirate was the company I could not find in that it was a production company that produced spots from a writer's point of view, meaning we would protect the idea, not want to turn it upside down. We were very successful very quickly, and I think it's not so much because we were so good at what we did, but I think the reality was most writers felt the same way I did. So when I offered up that safety, that place where you could bring an idea, because I was a writer, I knew the gauntlet ideas had to go through to get to production, knowing that I could protect those ideas. And I think a lot of writers wanted that as well. How did it feel to trade security and a career and becoming quite world-renowned for your work, to becoming an entrepreneur where you felt you had a big idea, you felt there was an unmet need, but you still had to prove it. Did that show a different side of Terry O'Reilly in terms of risk, in terms of your relationship with your wife? That's a very good question and and a very funny answer to this. Two things. When I felt the surprising urge to go out on my own, because I had always pictured myself having a long career in the advertising agency world, Five years into that world, I decide I feel like I want to go out on my own and I want to create this company I could not find. One evening, I said to my wife, Debbie, I want to start a company. I want to, and I told her what I had in mind for for Pirate. You have to put it in in perspective because at that moment, we had just bought our first home. We were just expecting our first child and I was throwing away a salary. And who knows, as you know, Tony, you you don't know how it's going to go. So my wife, she listened to me. Then she said, what's the worst that can happen to us? I guess if it doesn't work out, there's a chance we could lose our home. And she paused for a minute and she thought and she said, okay, let's do it. She supported me 100%, which I think is remarkable. The second thing I'll say about that is I, I kind of buy into Malcolm Gladwell's theory on entrepreneurs. It's not that we have this capacity for risk. I think we see our idea as a sure thing. That's what entrepreneurs have in common. And I really felt that pirate radio and television, that idea was going to be a sure thing because it was the company I could not find. And I just knew in my heart other writers felt the same way. So you're working at Pirate, and but you've worked with people like Alec Baldwin, Ellen DeGeneres, Kiefer Sutherland, Bob Newhart, Martin Short. I mean, these are big names. These are big voices that you know that are singing for their supper. Their real passion is obviously comedy or or drama. How do you work with celebrities so that when they're in your studio? They're giving their best versus just earning a check. It's an interesting thing that when you're working with celebrities, it's a very, very different studio environment. Normally, I'll bring in my favorite actors. They're usually Second City actors. I have a long relationship with them. We have a shorthand. If I want to explore something, they have the patience with me to go exploring. When you're working with a celebrity, you do not get that latitude. There's a pressure and a stress uh, scenario when you're dealing with celebrities in the studio. They usually come with an entourage. You're very aware of the celebrity's time. They usually, their agent will tell you, you've got 30 minutes. So what I normally would do is I would build 
the sound effects, the soundscape before the session so that the celebrity could actually hear what he he or she would eventually be fitting into. So if it was a scenario where he's walking down the street having a conversation, I would have built the soundscape so that when he starts recording or she, they can hear how they will fit into the final because I think that that helps every actor. And before every session with a celebrity, I, I would always, you know, turn off the mic, sit down with them and say, how do you like to work? Some of them just said, you know, just give me direction between takes and that'll be fine. And I said, great. When I worked with Kiefer Sutherland, when I asked that question, he said, I want to do 10 or 12 takes in a row before I get any direction from you. Okay, got it. So then when working with Kiefer, he'd do 12 takes in a row with no break. Then he would stop, go for a smoke, and we would listen to the 16 takes, see if I could cobble something together and see if there's something else I needed from him. So in other words, how do you like to work? Kind of let celebrities relax that I wasn't going to force some weirdness on them. I hear there's a story that you did a campaign for a group of nuns. <laughs> that is very true. I got a call one day from a nun who said that she and her fellow nuns were fans of our CBC radio show. And they said they had a branding problem. And I said, I'm very curious to hear what that is. When you were growing up, Terry, could you spot a nun across the street? And I said, yes. And they said, how would you do that? I said, well, because they would wear habits and they were very, you know, distinguishable. And she said, well, that's the problem. We no longer wear habits. We've lost our branding. People don't think of us anymore or we don't, they don't feel we're part of the community. We just have no visibility. So we'd like to create a, an advertising campaign that speaks to young women who may be feeling the calling of becoming a nun, but don't know that we're still out there, don't know where to go. And they had already struck an agreement with uh, the transit company in Sault Ste. Marie. They were based in Sault Ste. Marie, that they were going to get some interior bus boards. So they came to town. I think three or four nuns walked into my office one day and sat down. They were very smart, very savvy. We came back with a bus board idea, Tony, that basically said, I'm trying to remember the exact words now, if you're looking for answers, you're looking in the right direction. They had a little logo in their URL for their website. But what we did was we put that ad on the ceiling of the bus. So in other words, when you're looking up, you're looking at the big up, you're looking heavenly, right? When we presented that idea to them, they loved it. When I talked to the transit company, they hated it. They said, we don't put ads on the ceiling. I said, yeah, but is it potentially possible? They said, we do not put ads on the ceiling. I said, but is it feasible? theoretically to do it. They said, yes, it's possible, but we don't do it. I said, great, I'm coming to have a meeting with you. And eventually we talked them into putting the ads on the ceiling. And then what happened, this is the best part of the story, Tony. When those ads started running in the buses on the ceiling, they got a ton of attention. And not only that, the Globe and Mail did a huge article on the campaign and the nuns. It was a half-page article at the time, which is what the nuns wanted, right? They wanted visibility and 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 press and so that little campaign so smart of the nuns to even attempt it got them their visibility now as you're listening to this and you're pushing ideas forward in your life the insight that terry just shared and the sense of pushing and 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 not letting go of it and finding a way to even find a little you know, finger hold. Yeah, we can put something on the ceiling and then, well, then I'm coming to have a meeting. 
That's the difference between having a body of work that finds its way to the marketplace versus what every ad guy and every ad woman in the country will say, the ones that got away. It's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. Download and subscribe to my podcast. And when we come back, Terry O'Reilly goes from a production studio to in front of the microphone and almost overnight becomes one of our country's most popular hosts. Welcome to the awesome power of radio. While there is a lot of terrible radio advertising being transmitted, there is also some excellent work being done around the world. And I like to tip my hat to those radio writers who truly understand the creative potential of radio. Because when radio is used creatively, it makes your ears happy, instead of making your teeth hurt. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout-out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure, and access industry experts and mentors. RBC is enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. Now more with Tony Chapman. Welcome back to Chat of the Matters presented by RBC. My guest today is Terry O'Reilly. Terry, before I get into your radio shows and this incredible success and yet another pivot, I just want to get a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? Sudbury, Ontario. What was family life like? Two wonderful parents still with me almost in their 90s now. Growing up in Sudbury was great. It was, you know, we had 300 lakes. My summers were always spent around the water. I live on a lake now at this stage of my life. My dad worked in the mine, Falconbridge. Uh, My mom was a nurse. I worked in the mine for a summer job. And then I left to go to Ryerson in 1978. Where was the love of writing come from? Was it a lot of writers say they just loved to read as a kid and imagine doing it? Or like, where did that whole side of you come that, that, you know, family with minors, nursing, caring, and next thing you know, you're on the creative side? I don't think I was a big reader as a kid, but I was a big consumer of television and movies. My dad loved movies. I think I inherited or by sitting with him and hearing my dad laugh at movies was one of my favorite places to be. So I had, I had a love of pop culture. The funny thing was, in school, Tony, I, I did okay. I wasn't like a, a straight-A student by any stretch, but I always got a great mark in English class, which was always a mystery to me because I didn't put any extra effort into writing stories for English. It was just another homework assignment to me. So where I would get, you know, uh, <laughs> 68% in math, I would get, uh, you know, a 93 in English, and I just could never figure out why that was because it wasn't... I didn't particularly love it, but that was a consistent theme through grade school and in high school. And then in university, I would write shows that then we would produce as a class. I truly feel I just kind of fell into it. If you hadn't gone to Ryerson, what would you, what do you think Terry O'Reilly would have done? My other fantasy, Tony, is to become an architect. Let's take it back. So you've got pirate happening and you're, you know, you're the person that's behind, you're sitting down with the Kiefer Sutherlands, you're, you're creating this great body of work, but then you decide to sort of leave that and become, and I know there's a period in between, but become a host of your own radio show. For many years at Pirate, I would hold a creative radio day. So I would rent a big hall or a big space in Toronto, a theater. I would invite 200 young copywriters 
to the day. I would give them breakfast, I would feed them lunch, and then I would have an open bar at the end of the day. And I would get on that stage, Tony, and I would teach them how to create creative, effective radio for seven hours. I would stand on that stage for seven hours. You know, humor versus drama, script structure, studio protocol, casting, use of sound effects, how to judge music, all of those, everything I'd ever learned. One day, I was out having a beer with two other radio friends of mine who worked at radio station, worked at Chum Radio in Toronto. And one of them said to me, you know that radio seminar you do every year? I think that would make a great radio show. I think the CBC would run that show. You mean the advertising-free CBC would run a show on advertising? So we all had a laugh and finished our beers in the sun. And I went home and I couldn't get that out of my mind. Mike Tennant was also at that lunch, another great radio freelance writer. And he and I decided to go pitch this crazy idea to CBC Radio. And we the pitch was really simple, Tony. The pitch was basically this. We said to them, advertising is kind of like architecture because it's everywhere in your life. And most people think it's intrusive and annoying and dumb and stupid. And I said, but the reality is it's a fascinating business because it's the study of human nature. And we're not academics. We're not pundits. We're not journalists. We are working ad men in the trenches. So we have access and we have stories. And we want to take the average Canadian behind the curtain and show them how advertising is created. We didn't really think the CBC would take it. That's a great idea. It's not for us, but maybe we can do something else together. But at that meeting, the head of of radio, who at the time was Chris Boyce, leaned back in his chair and said, we'll take it. And was it always going to be called uh, The Art of Persuasion? They took us on to be a summer replacement show. So for July and August in 2005, our show went on the air when one of their bigger, more successful shows went on hiatus. And it was called O'Reilly on Advertising. At the end of that, those two months, the response was so curious and kind and, and, uh, and effusive that much to our surprise, I may add, CBC said to us, we want to take you on full time, not just as a summer replacement show. So then Mike and I rejigged the show, knowing that we actually had a, uh, an arc now <laughs> that we had, a, we had some runway. So we changed the title of the show to the age of persuasion. And then Mike left to pursue other stuff. And I thought, okay, so much has changed since 2005. So I changed the scope of the show to not just be about advertising, but to be about marketing. So a much bigger aperture. And I changed the title to Under the Influence because influence seemed to be more persuasive than hardcore persuasion at that point. Even when we started the show, Tony, there were no iPhones, no Facebook, no Twitter. Like so much had changed in those five years. When did you know... That you had a hit show on your hands. The first indication was the amount of email we got. And then when the ratings started coming in, we could see the numbers really starting to climb. And in our first couple of years, if I'm remembering this correctly, we had about, on radio, about 450,000 listeners a show. Pretty huge to us back then. And do you have a favorite episode? The show often tells me where it wants to go. I started to write a show. I wanted to write a show about advertising to women because women buy 85% of the goods and services in this world and so much advertising is aimed at women. So I wanted to explore that. Doing the research for that show, I stumbled upon really the history of advertising to women and how 
in the 1950s after the war ended that a lot of, you know, industry started return to manufacturing goods and services, not just for the war effort. And there were a lot of innovations in war, like nylon parachutes became nylons and, you know, bug bombs became furniture polish because of the aerosol spray. Like there was so much innovation in the 50s. Corporate America needed to find a built-in audience to sell all these new products. And so what they did was they tried to glorify the stay-at-home mom, the happy housewife. That, of course, you know, led to a lot of women staying home and it led to a lot of angst. You know, the feminine mystique, that famous book, which chronicled that feeling among women that they really weren't being fulfilled by staying home. But anyway, that show led me to that root of that thing. And it became my favorite episode. It was called The Happy Homemaker. It was a two-part series where the show really took me in that direction. And I learned. You know, Terry, I'm, I'm not a jealous person. But when I heard you found a vintage Airstream and tricked it out to create your own mobile recording studio so that you could produce your show living by the lake, <laughs> that's just a, someone's just chasing their dream. Good for you. Yes. Uh, it's such a great story. My, I was driving into Toronto. I was living in Creemore at the time. It was a two-hour drive into Toronto each way, and I would have to go in every week to record the show. And so it ended up being a full day to record a 27-minute show. I'd always loved Airstream trailers. I'm not a trailer guy. I wouldn't go vacation in a trailer. It's just not for me. But I always loved the aesthetic of Airstreams. And one day my wife, Debbie, said to me when we were talking about my commute every week, she said, could you build a recording studio in an Airstream? And then the light just went off for me. I said, yes, that is such a great idea because we had a cottage and a home and we were kind of tethered to Toronto to record. That would free us up. So I started my search for Airstreams. I managed to find one close, like an hour away, just on online. I went to look at it. It was a 1969 Airstream Caravelle. It needed a lot of work. I made a deal for it on the spot, towed it home. Then I started my search to try and find somebody who knew how to restore Airstreams. And then I needed to find somebody who knew how to build a recording studio in an Airstream. Through a very extensive search, I found this one guy that did both. He built you know, editing suites and Airstreams for celebrities when they're on location. And I wondered where in California he was. And I was scrolling down his website and I get to the bottom and he's in Nova Scotia. And I can't believe it. And I call him up and I say, you know, what's your background? He said, well, I'm a, I am a transplanted Californian. So my wife and I towed our Airstream. First time I'd ever towed a trailer, Tony. I towed it all the way out to Nova Scotia, left it with him for a year. And he transformed this, I'm sitting in it right now, into this beautiful workspace and recording studio, which is where we've been recording the show now for probably four or five years. You led the whole move to working remote. That's exactly right. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and this is Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Terry O'Reilly talks about another of his passions, sharing what he's learned on a conference stage and in books. Everyone is familiar with the yin and yang symbol. You see one here and behind me. It stands, of course, for the seemingly opposing forces in life that are interconnected and interdependent in our world. The black side stands for yin, or soft. The white side stands for yang, or hard. It symbolizes the duality of life. One side cannot exist without the other. Night moves into day, winter exists with summer, loudness with silence, hate cannot exist without love, etc. But I wonder if you've ever looked very closely at the yin and yang symbol. Have you ever noticed a little white dot in the black side and a little black dot in the white side? 
See, inside every yang, there's a little yin. Inside every yin, there's a little yang. In other words, friction. So if you need to try to make people believe, if you're ever struggling to get people to a certain place, if you're ever looking for a leverage point to move a mountain, maybe what you need is a little friction. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Terry O'Reilly, the host of Under the Influence and the recipient of three Lifetime Achievement Awards, three honorary degrees. This is a guy that has one credit short of getting graduating. In the inaugural inductee to the RTA School of Media Hall and Fame. Tell me a bit about your work on the conference stage. I've heard you speak a couple of times. I've actually had the honor of interviewing you. So a couple of stories that I'd love you to share with the audience. I don't want to give away your entire talk. It is phenomenal. But tell my audience why Van Halen insisted that they don't have brown M&Ms. When Van Halen did, stopped having hits on the charts, their manager wanted to figure out a way to keep them popular. In other words, keep them touring so they would have some revenue. So he hit on this idea to not just play in the big A markets like Toronto and New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, but to play the lucrative B and C markets in this world, like Barrie, Ontario, or Halifax, Nova Scotia, or Poughkeepsie, New York. The smaller towns where big bands never, ever went. That if a big band made the effort to go to a tiny town, that those the fans in that town would become diehard fans, lifelong fans. And his theory ended up being exactly right. When Van Halen started rolling into small towns, they didn't roll into town with a couple of U-Haul trailers. They rolled in with, you know, 18 transport trucks full of equipment. They started running into problems where, you know, sometimes the doors weren't wide enough to get their extensive speakers through or a stage collapsed under their feet because it couldn't hold the weight of all their equipment. And what they realized was these small town promoters weren't paying attention to all their contract demands. As a test, they put in the middle of their contract a little rider that said, we demand a dish of M&Ms backstage, but we want all the brown M&Ms removed. That has gone down in history as a very pretentious rock and roll demand because they can, but it wasn't that at all. It was actually a counterintuitive idea to make sure that the promoter was reading the full contract. So when they walked backstage and saw a dish of M&Ms, and there were brown M&Ms in that dish, they knew instantly that the promoter hadn't read the contract top to bottom. I know chicken farmers would love to hear your story about the chicken and the hawks. So in Nakuru, uh, in Africa, there are these chicken farmers. They have small plots of land. They raise chickens for a living. But they were losing the majority of their flocks every year because that area of Africa has a lot of hawks. The farmers just learned to live with this loss. They couldn't fight the hawks off. So they got together and at some point in these meetings, they decided to not think like a farmer, but to think like a hawk. They started to ask more interesting questions like, what do hawks love? Why do hawks love to eat chickens? But then it evolved into what do hawks not like? And they figured out they could actually hide the chicks in plain sight and save them. They painted the chicks purple. Hawks don't recognize the color purple as food. So they developed a biodegradable paint that did not harm the chicks and wore off in 10 weeks. How beautiful is that idea? And as I say in my talks, you know, a hawk would look at a purple chick and think to itself, what the hell is that? 
And I, I tell that story because it's, it's about counterintuitive thinking, but it's also about thinking of the, of the problem in a three dimensional way, not just from your perspective, but from another perspective. You have three daughters. What do they think of their dad? <laughs> well, one answer to that question is we now have a podcast company and a podcast network called the Apostrophe Podcast Company. So we create podcasts and we also host external podcasts on our network. It's an unusual company in the podcast world because it's a family-owned company. So my wife, Debbie, my daughter, Callie Ray, and my other daughter, Sydney, were all equal partners in this company. And we all brought very different skill sets to the, to the business. So I'm a writer and a director. Callie Ray was, is a director. She directed commercials for five years. She was the youngest female commercial director in Canada at one point. My other daughter, Sydney, is, is a social media guru and a writer as well. My oldest daughter, it lives in London, England, and she's a high school teacher. So she's not part of the company, but they all grew up in a house that loved pop culture, Tony. So at some point or another, I think that's a big part of their lives. Even my, my high school teaching daughter is a huge pop culture fan. So. so you have a hit radio show and podcast, the Vintage Airstream. You've got a family business that where two of your three daughters and your wife are involved. Lifetime Achievement Awards. What's next for Terry O'Reilly? I have a new book coming out in October. It's an interesting, it's not about marketing. This is the first time I have written a non-marketing book, Tony. So that'll be a new direction for me. The book title is My Best Mistake. And in this book, I tell stories of people who made catastrophic career decisions where they lost their jobs, their credibility, their sanity, only to find that it was the best thing that ever happened to them. Terry O'Reilly, I always end my shows with three things I've learned. The first one is you as a young kid raising your hand, scared to hell. And in doing so, you said that was my moment. The second thing I think is when you sat down with celebrities and to disarm them, because I think a lot of times they'll come in with insecurity and imposter syndromes, even if they are celebrities. Always be the person that's a Yoda asking the other person, how can I help? and How can I serve you? And the third thing, because I've heard your speech, I've heard you talk about contrarian thinking, I've, I've seen people write rapidly with their notes as you're talking, is the ability to think like a hawk and really understand that there's many sides to every coin. And the great admin, the great entrepreneurs, the great creative people have the curiosity, courage, and the conviction to realize they're not the only idea in town. It's really other people and where they're heading in life that matters most. Terry O'Reilly, you've been an absolute pleasure. Continue to be a fan, and I can't wait to read uh, your next book. Thank you, Tony. Really enjoyed this, and I feel the same way about you, too. Joining me now on Chatter That Matters is Carolyn Paxton. If you're a fan of the show, you know that I've called on her more than once. She's with RBC. She's a VP of Media and Strategic Initiatives. She's really has her pulse on creativity, content, channels, how to get heard, how to get the attention that you deserve. Carolyn, welcome uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. So, Carolyn, John Stackhouse, one of your peers, was talking about in the future, every job is going to require creativity. Do you agree? I absolutely agree with that. I think creativity is fundamental to really any role. And I think for creativity to be fostered in any institution, you know, whether it's RBC or it's Second City, you need to have an environment where people are feel confident about expressing their ideas that there really can't be any bad ideas. So one of the things we do on my team to really foster and encourage creativity is that we have this book club and we meet once a month 
Uh, right now, we're reviewing this book called Tribe of Mentors, which is this tiny bite-sized advice from world leaders in you know business, athletes, musicians, actors. Everyone in the team picks somebody that they want the rest of us to read. And then we talk about that. It's really a great way to foster people feeling comfortable about speaking up and contributing their ideas. It's also really fascinating that, you know, the directions that we end up going sometimes in terms of how we can apply some of these advice and learning to our own lives and to our own work. We hear a lot about bridging the generational gap. In the past, it was just about age, but now we have people coming in that they're digital natives or people have come in and done it a certain way. In the creative process, you have to leave a lot of that at the door, your ego and the things that you think you know, so that together you can contribute and create a better future. Is that a difficult challenge to do or is that something that just happens naturally? I think it is a difficult challenge and I think it really does start all the way um, from the culture of the teams. And I think it takes a long time to build that trust within teams that folks feel like they can contribute to the ideas without being shot down. How can people guide them, themselves through this complexity and try to find the channels that make the most sense to the content they want to present? It's really about where is your audience in the moment? So depending on the message that you want to deliver, and, you know, again, whether is that, you know, is that a a video message? Is that a um, visual message? Is it audio? You know, then it's really aligning the right channel with your message and the audience that you have. Give me an example with an RBC where that creative process has manifested itself into some kind of idea that you're, you're really proud of it. I think creativity is about bringing different folks together and it's about looking at something uh, that's maybe been done before and putting a new lens on it. One idea that I'm incredibly proud of is our partnership with McGill University. We created a course which now has had over 300,000 participants and based on that success, we're leveraging that same model to work with other schools on other topics to provide free education to Canadians. That's amazing. I did a series called Word Matters where I asked my guests to pick the word that mattered most to them. I'm going to rephrase that question. When it comes to your job, what word would you pick that matters most? I think the word is growth. You know, I get a lot of pleasure out of seeing people grow and ideas grow. And I think that's something that deserves to be celebrated. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.